This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, serious discussions of alternative ways to deal with the drug war in Latin America. Many nations are pushing decriminalization, but is that a serious solution? And later, a discussion of the economic and political might of Brazil in advance of President Dilma Rousseff's visit to Washington next week. But first, we turn to Vanessa Jesus Gonzati, who has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Colombia's main rebel group, the FARC, released 10 hostages this week. A Brazilian military helicopter picked them up from the jungle and flew them into safety. They were the last police and military hostages in the hands of the armed revolutionary forces of Colombia. The Red Cross and a group of Colombian mediators coordinated the release. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos welcomed this action. This liberation, and especially the commitment made by the FARC to not kidnap again, is a gesture that we value, and we value it in all its dimensions. Without a doubt, it is a step in the right direction, a very important one. But Santos said that it is not enough to agree to peace talks. The FARC announced in February that they would stop abducting civilians, but they are still holding an unknown number of civilians as hostages. The Cuban Human Rights and National Reconciliation Commission says the Cuban government arrested 43 dissidents this week. The head of the group, Elizardo Sanchez, says 10 women and 33 men were arrested near the Santiago de Cuba area. Almost all the detainees are members of the Patriotic Union of Cuba. The U.S. State Department says it is extremely concerned about the latest attentions and calls upon the government to release activists. Chile's Congress passes an anti-discrimination law after the killing of a gay man last week. The House of Deputies approved the measure on Wednesday, seven years after it was first proposed. The Senate had passed the law in November. President Sebastián Piñera asked lawmakers to speed up approval of the law after 24-year-old Daniel Samudio's death. He died 25 days after being attacked, and since then a national debate in Chile about hate crimes has stirred up. Mexico's former president, Miguel de la Madrid Hurtado, passed away last week. He was 77 years old and suffered from respiratory problems. De La Madrid led Mexico from 1982 to 1988 during a devastating earthquake and an economic crisis. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement officials say they arrested more than 3,000 criminals and people living in the country illegally this week. During the six-day operation, also called cross-check, authorities took in offenders across the nation. Out of the thousands taken into custody, about half had felony convictions such as murder, manslaughter, attempted murder, kidnapping, child abuse, assault, and other offenses. Authorities from the agency say this is part of the government's effort to give deportation priority to criminals. The Obama administration has faced criticism from all parts of the political spectrum due to its policies on illegal immigration. This is Vanessa Jesus-Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. Our first guest this week is Peter Hakem, President Emeritus of the Inter-American Dialogue 
a think tank concerned about linkages between the U.S. and Latin America. Earlier this year, the Dialogue released a report looking at alternatives in the drug war. And Peter Hakem recently penned an opinion piece for Colombia's El Espectador about the U.S. and its drug war policies. So we've invited him in here to discuss that in light of the coming Summit of the Americas later this month. Peter Hakem, welcome to Latin Pulse. Oh, thank you very much. In recent weeks, we've heard conservative presidents, such as Otto Perez Molina in Guatemala, float the idea of decriminalizing drugs as a new strategy in the drug war. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, it's not surprising that they... Uh, the presidents, there have been three presidents that have raised the issue. All three are probably the, been the toughest on drugs in their own countries. So beyond Guatemala, we're talking about... About Colombia and Mexico. And these are presidents, all of whom are engaged in a battle against the drug cartels. Uh, homicides are very high in the country. They really see this as almost a national security issue. And it's not surprising that these are the presidents that are sort of looking to alternatives. Uh, they're looking to alternatives because they're having difficulties. They're not sort of winning the, the war. Colombia has done better than the others, but at a huge cost, and they're only halfway there. Uh, so, and, legalism, and some would argue it took more than a decade to get them halfway well, there. Well, that right. And with the U.S. aid of close to $600 million a year, plus huge amounts of spending by the Colombians. And uh, legalization, I think, is simply a grasping at something. I think legalization is a very tough question. Uh, it's not simple. In fact, the word legalization is one that covers such a wide range of possibilities uh, that it's not a terribly useful term. For example, legalize what? Do you legalize marijuana? That uh, You get a lot of people saying that should happen. Uh, legalize cocaine and heroin? Very few people say that. How do you legalize it? Do you legalize use? Do you legalize possession? Do you legalize the drug trade? Uh, what, do you, what is it that you legalize? Or minimal amounts of possession. Right. And, or to whom do you? What about children, kids? Those are big users of drugs. So you really have, I, I like to think about it in a very different way. I, I don't think legalization in and of itself is a very useful way to think about it. Please tell us how you're thinking about it in, in maybe more well, complex Well, in some ways. sense, the first, the first thing to think about is marijuana. Should marijuana be treated as if it were in the class with cocaine and heroin, for example? Or would it be more uh, sensible, more intelligent to consider it as uh, more similar to alcohol and tobacco? Uh, there's some debate over this, but by and large, we're seeing uh, marijuana moving toward legalization, even in the United States. Medical marijuana use has spread. It's now something like 15, 16 states. Uh, and of course, California had a referendum on legalizing it, uh, its use completely. It lost by only a few percentage points. And I think we're moving to reclassify marijuana. But, you know, from the Latin American standpoint, marijuana is not the big problem. 
Uh, it's not a problem very much. It's not the cause of all the violence and crime. What they're concerned about in Latin America is how do you reduce the power of the drug cartels, how you begin to gain control, recontrol of cities and territory. And uh, I suspect that it's the hard drugs, and particularly cocaine in this case, that's really the problem. And the question is, uh, is it possible really to legalize cocaine? Even in Mexico or in Guatemala, uh, people are not supportive of legalizing. They really want to get it out of the system. So politically, it's very difficult. And secondarily, uh, it's not clear at all what would happen. In other words, would use go way up? Marijuana is a widely used drug. Cocaine and heroin are not so widely used. If you move toward any form of legalization, would that create a whole new uh, a source of customers? Uh, so there, there are a lot of reasons to be very cautious about moving in that direction. Well, in an election year in the U.S., the term or the phrase legalizing drugs seems to be completely off the table, and that may be why we talk about decriminalizing. But in the political sense inside Latin America, and I'm glad you pointed that out, you have these conservative presidents, Calderon in Mexico, Perez Molina in, in Guatemala. Juan Manuel Santos in Colombia. Sure. You have all of these folks from the conservative side bringing this up, and it may be that only conservatives can really bring this up. No, I, I think the people bringing it up, as I suggested before, have been engaged in the battle. And in many respects, they feel they're not winning the battle, that it's overwhelming them. And so a country like Brazil, which has a far higher usage of drugs than these other countries, with a uh, uh, sort of less conservative uh, leadership now, uh, you don't hear any discussion of legalization. And my suspicion is that legalization is sort of a last grasp, that people are looking for some way out of what is a real morass you have studied and looked at Latin America for decades. What, what are your suggestions to these presidents who are trying to struggle with this morass? Well, I think, I mean, I think they're absolutely right that uh, what would most help them is a sharp reduction in consumption in the United States. That's not likely in the short run. So they're going to have to get control of it. I would like to see the U.S. be more helpful in this. I think that the target in Latin America should not be drugs per se, but should be the crime and violence, which means a whole lot of interventions uh, from the justice system and the police and improving uh, uh, the, the quality of, of just ordinary on-the-street policing. Uh, but it also has to do with education and uh, at, at, at its end, uh, you know, poverty and the lack of, uh, of, of jobs, etc. So you really have to, uh, it's hard to say this, but this is, uh, countries have to uh, move from their current state to a state where they're more able to control their, their institutions and control uh, uh, their nation. And uh, Colombia has moved a long way. I think Mexico will gain control, I think, but it's a very high cost. Uh, 
this has been a big problem in Mexico over the past six years where the central government in Mexico City seems to have lost control of some of parts of the northern states uh, that are involved in the drug war. And this is something that I don't think a decade ago we would have predicted would have happened. No, I don't think anyone predicted this. Uh, Mexico looked like it was uh, doing pretty well. Its institutions looked like they were gaining strength, not... Uh, and. Uh, uh, but I think there was a high levels of corruption. The, the drug trade was being carried out with a wink and a nod by political leaders and uh, uh, by security services. Uh, and Calderon, uh, to his credit and uh, to his courage, uh, decided to try and do something about it. And that uh, appears to have really stirred up the hornet's nest. And I don't think he was prepared for it. I don't think the U.S. was very prepared for it. There was very little strategy behind what he was trying to do. He was unaware of the amount of resources that were necessary, unaware of the absolute depths of brutality that these criminal organizations would resort to. And uh, he's paid a high price for it. Uh, and, uh, the, and Mexico has paid a high price for it. Almost 50,000 dead. And the U.S. has paid very little price for it, uh, even though that it's the U.S. market that uh, without the U.S. market, there would be no drug cartels. And they may be criminal gangs doing other things. And then you have to uh, sort of rub salt in the wound that most of the guns... And when I say guns, these are not small guns. These are bazookas and very heavy armaments uh, in Mexico are mostly coming from uh, uh, stores in Texas and all along the border because of our lax gun laws. The assault weapons are yeah. coming from there. And then, so, and then so it's the money flowing south, the guns flowing south, and it's all uh, sort of coming from here. And uh, you know, we could do a lot by changing our drug laws. The first thing is, you know, we have a prison population that's outrageous. It's the highest of almost any country in the world. I think maybe uh, China and the Soviet Union have a slightly higher per capita, but U.S. is immense. It's destroying the lives and careers of many young people. That's just not the way to to, to proceed. Obama has talked about changing it. In fact, he has decided that, that no longer is it going to be called a war on drugs. Health uh, prevention are sort of the watchwords now. But the fact is that he hasn't changed the budget very much. He hasn't changed the culture of the institutions that are engaged in the battle against drugs. And I think a lot has to be done, but no one wants to talk about it in the United States. Very little conversation about drugs. There's, there's no winning for Obama bringing that topic to the table in this election cycle. Not now. Not now. It's, it's, it's an unpredictable. Uh, and uh, the one thing Obama doesn't like is unpredictability. We talk a lot about it, this program in, in the U.S. being disengaged from Latin America in the past decade. Uh, didn't begin with Obama, but seems to have continued some of that disengagement. Would you, would you be um, um, favorable for him to engage more both on this topic and other topics in Latin America? Well, you know, that's my profession to encourage that engagement. So it'd be hard for me, you know, uh, with, with an institution named the Inter-American Dialogue, yes, uh, 
Uh, I think, in fact... But you'd uh, agree that he's been somewhat disengaged. Uh, well, I think that there's been a trend for quite a while now of disengagement. I think that we're seeing the results of it during his term, and, and he has not done anything to reverse that course, certainly. Uh, clearly, he's engaged in a lot of other fronts in Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran. But nonetheless, I think there is a drifting apart of the U.S. and Latin America. There's no question the U.S. is certainly less relevant to the region today than it was in the past. Uh, one sees that very clearly as we prepare for the Summit of the Americas, a gathering of leaders, uh, 34 democratically elected leaders from every country in the hemisphere except Cuba, to talk about the, the issues. And... Uh, there's not much attention being given to that, that, that gathering, and it only gained attention in recent weeks because people have insisted that you put two very controversial topics on the agenda. First is the drug issue, and uh, uh, the, the, the summit will be held in Colombia, and Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia, has said he wants it on the agenda. And uh, secondly, Cuba, which... Uh, there was some effort to uh, get Cuba invited to the summit, and uh, that didn't quite uh, work out. Uh, but the countries are now insisting that they will not attend. Latin American countries are insisting they will not attend another summit without Cuba. Well, looking forward to the Summit of the Americas next week is a good way for us to close. Peter Hakem, our guest this week on Latin Pulse. Peter Hakem, the President Emeritus of the Inter-American Dialogue. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, Brazil's growth and what it means not just for the hemisphere, but more importantly, context before President Dilma Rousseff's summit meeting with Barack Obama next week. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. It seems all the news we hear from Brazil these days is about growth. This year, Brazil passed the United Kingdom and now has the sixth largest economy in the world. Joining us to discuss Brazil, its growth, and what that means is Matt Taylor, a professor and political scientist at American University. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thanks very much. Until January, you were living in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. So please give us some context with the World Cup, the Olympics also on the way to Brazil. Are we seeing not just a Brazilian decade, but the emergence of Brazil on the world stage for this century in a stronger way than ever before? Well, thank you. Um, it's definitely, uh, there's been a sea change in Brazil, and Brazil has uh, had a wonderful decade uh, I'd say actually two decades, uh, one that was marked by an enormous conquest which was stabilizing the economy uh, after many years of hyperinflation. Uh, and the second uh, major conquest is the social conquest, that is um, managing to bring an enormous number of people out of the ranks of the poor and into the middle class. So this is, uh, these are two very important achievements for Brazil. 
The question, I think, is how sustainable they are in the medium and long term. And so your question about whether it's a Brazilian century rather than just a Brazilian decade is a really good one. Um, and it isn't clear, to be quite frank, it isn't clear that it is going to be a Brazilian century. Um, there are a number of reasons for that. But, uh, but certainly a Brazilian decade. Well, it has been a Brazilian decade. Um, what we're seeing right now are some troubling signs that I think uh, we should be aware of. Uh, the first is um, that Brazil's growth this year is going to be considerably lower than it was two years ago when uh, Brazil grew 7.5% in the run-up to the election. Last year it grew less than 3%, and this year um, there's some concern that it will grow below the uh, government's 4.5% uh, growth uh, prediction. Um, and so the government is doing everything it can to make sure uh, to make sure that Brazil continues to grow, and that includes some things that are a little bit troubling in terms of how sustainable they are over the long haul. Um, things such as uh, protecting local industry, uh, creating tax breaks, and um, generally sort of priming the pump as opposed to. Um, working to, to, to carry out longer-term structural reforms that might have an effect over the longer haul. And there are a number of things that, that Brazil really needs to do if it wants to grow in the long term uh, on the structural front. Uh, Brazil has one of the highest tax rates in the world. Uh, about 30% of GDP goes into taxes. Um, it has incredibly ossified labor markets and um, it has a very low investment rate by comparative international standards. Its investment rate is around, uh, well, between 19 and 20 percent. And if you compare that to Asia, which frequently ranges above 40, sometimes even to 50 percent, um, you know, this is a very low rate of investment. Let's break that down for some folks. Since you talked about the 30 percent tax rate, 30 percent of uh of gross domestic product, uh, yes. GDP. Mm -hmm. um, and so since you talked about that, um, isn't this something that we might expect from two leftist governments to be on the high tax end and trying to create some equity in Brazil? Mm. And why is that necessarily bad? Well, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, but, uh, you know, if you compare Brazil to the U.S., this is almost twice as much as the U.S. tax take. And, of course, in the U.S., uh, we have a, a different attitude towards government and a different attitude and, a, and of course, a, a different problem with the poor. Um, not a better problem, but a different problem. Uh, and Brazil has had long had just enormously high inequality, and that, I think, should be the, the primary concern as it thinks about pro-poor policies. The problem is that um, much of the growth in the tax take, and this is a growth, uh, this is a, a, a trend that's been ongoing under both governments of uh, Lula and Dilma, as well as the government of Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who was center uh, to center right, um, all of these governments have increased the tax, tra uh, tax take. So the, the trend is really continuously upward, and it goes to benefit primarily government itself. And so we haven't, I think what's preoccupying and worrisome about the rising tax take is we haven't seen any attempt to try to, to curb the growth of government. And so you do have some problematic issues here, uh, such as, for example, Brazil has an enormous number of political appointees, 
around 20 to 25,000 political appointees just at the federal level. Some people claim there are as many as 500,000 political appointees at the state and municipal level. Uh, and then, of course, what are they doing once they get into office? They have their own policy programs, uh, and frequently these policy programs are not aimed at the broader public good, but rather at uh, satisfying, you know, clientelistic needs or, or local political uh, parties' needs. Let's go back and, and also talk about the poverty point that you brought up, because you said that the context is different for folks dealing with poverty in Brazil than in the United States, and I'm not sure folks in the United States understand that. Certainly we we hear and see the legendary favelas and so much of Brazilian culture seems to be linked to favela culture in some way, but I don't think we really grasp that and understand it. So can you help us with that? Well, certainly. I, I would point to two pretty large differences. One is inequality, and of course inequality is rising in the United States, but Brazil has long been among the worst countries in terms of inequality. Um, and so the, 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 the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of inequality, uh, has long been among the world's worst. Um, it's gotten better over the last 20 years, and uh, this is a really important achievement. But this improvement, uh, I think, has to be measured against how far it has to go still. The, the second, uh, I think, difference is just the scale of poverty. And if you look at the, percent of the percentage of the population who are either uh, indigent, that is extremely poor, and poor, that's almost half of the population. And so, for example, when um, President Lula created the Bolsa Familia program, which is famous, it's a cash uh, transfer program, a conditional cash transfer program, whereby families earn um, a subsidy if they keep their kids in school, if they vaccinate their kids, Poor families can earn a subsidy ranging from about $15 to $150 a month. And so this is a really important program. The number of poor who participate in this program is gigantic. Uh, it's about 13 million families out of 50 million families in Brazil. So a very large percentage of the population. And this is just shocking, I think, for Americans if you think about 26% of the population, over a quarter of the population, receiving Bolsa Familia. And Bolsa Familia benefits really go to families that are earning under around $450 a month. So this is a very poor segment of the population. And the success of Bolsa Familia, uh, I think, is, is one of the reasons it's been so successful is precisely because uh, this population is so large. Uh, Brazil has also benefited from, from two sort of uh, larger forces, larger waves that are sort of pushing it forward. What would those be? The, the first is domestic, and the first is the increase in domestic credit and the, the, the enormous uh, accessibility of credit to especially to the middle and lower classes who previously under hyperinflation couldn't even think about uh, credit, never had access to credit. And now with the end of hyperinflation in the 1990s and then the expansion of um, government-led credit programs, we're able for the first time to really access uh, bank loans, whether it's for credit cards or even in some cases housing loans. So this is a really important change, and that may have driven much of Brazil's growth over the past decade. The second major um, wave that's pushing Brazil forward uh, is, is the commodity market. And, you know, China 
is the major driver of this, and we don't know how long China's rise will, will last. I hope it lasts for a long time, but we just don't know. Um, Seems to be slowing down from the recent statistics. Yeah, and so this, this should be a concern. Um, the, the, the other concern uh, as we think about commodities is what they mean in terms of um, investments within Brazil. And w one of the major talking points um, behind uh, President Dilma's recent economic policies has to do with the so-called deindustrialization of Brazil. And this is a concern as Brazil becomes more agricultural or more mineral commodity-based. Uh, what will that mean for for the economy? Uh, what will it mean for industry, especially in light of the wave, I mean, just an enormous wave of Chinese uh, imports from China to Brazil uh, of industrial products? And so there's some concern with deindustrialization and, and, and its effects on Brazil. Well, deindustrialization, sustainability, two key words, I think, going forward for Brazil. Matt Taylor, political scientist at American University, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Matt, for joining us. Thank you very much. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for listening this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>